Our scripture is from Matthew 21, 28 through 46. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For God came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to the wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of crop at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you ever read in the scriptures, stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew, he was, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Yeah. All right, well done. That's a big passage of scripture right there. Okay, so good morning. Everybody good? My name's Tommy. Uh, good to see you. Let me arrange the furniture, get all ready here. Um, I'm the pastor here. Uh, if we haven't met, meet me. Be glad to meet you. And for those of you who have been coming for a while, good to see you again. And uh, we've been going through the book of Matthew. And by the time we're done, it'll be three years when we're finished. And it'll be a great three years. I'm excited about ending it and launching into our next decade-long study of maybe Acts. Who knows? Um, and uh, so we have a very big passage of Scripture today. Um, and there's three things here. There's a parable, and there's another parable, and then there's some stuff about rocks and stones. And we're going to take it all sort of separately. And uh, at the end of it, after I go through all three of these, I'm just going to offer some things to ponder about the passage, and hopefully that will help. So, um, um, yeah, March 26th, my teacher's coming. My teacher is coming here. So, uh, Scott McKnight. So, uh, if you, he'd be really happy if you'd read one or two of his books and bring some problems or questions to ask him, all right? Be like, 
Now, here's my problem with this book. So um, the, the Blue Parakeet, read that book. That'll set you up. And then, and then Kingdom Conspiracy, then read that one. And you'll be like, I'm in. Can't wait for this guy to come. Now, um, so I'm going to just open us up in a word of prayer. And then, uh, and then we'll get started, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I lift up everyone in this room. I ask that you would, uh, first off, give us calm Um, Give us a calmness of heart and spirit. Give us some peace. There are many things that uh, that in our lives individually that are that are raging. That maybe we are some battles we are fighting, and um, some things we are carrying around regrets for, and some things that are coming that we are afraid of. And I ask that you would, right now, help us to be present here with our brothers and sisters. Um, Help us to push these things aside. Affirm that they are real. And they are difficult. And now help us to put them aside uh, so that we can be here present with you and your sons and daughters and concentrate on the things of you, the higher things of life, the most important things of life, so that when we pick these things back up, we will have a, a new perspective on how to see them. Um, I ask for guidance this morning. I ask for, uh, for joy, that we would be filled with joy and mission and purpose um, that we would repent fully of the things we need to repent of, uh, give us a new understanding and a, a new view of ourselves, uh, of our community and of our world. Speak through me. Allow me, myself, to be present and undistracted and, and speaking clearly um, and communicating the things that I've studied. In your name, amen. Okay, so Jesus is in the temple still. We paused halfway through a conversation he was having with the chief priests and the scribes. The day before this passage, um, Jesus made a bit of a scene. There was a parade going on earlier in the day with Pilate and his army and his forces uh, showing off their, their army, their horses and their uh, chariots and their swords, banging the drums, playing the, har- uh, the, the, the trumpets and just making a big show of force. And then Jesus enters from the north side of the city and holds his own parade, a small little gathering of people who who he has won over, who have offered their entire lives to him, everything they have over to him, not out of fear of repercussions of the sword, but because he loves them and has served them. And he is displaying how the kingdom of God works, that its coercive power is through service, not through force. Um, And then he walks into the temple and he starts flipping tables and and he stops the sacrifices for at least a couple of hours while he also brings in with him all of the, the lame and the blind, all of those who have been kicked out of the city of David by David himself um, a thousand years earlier and said they will never be here. And Jesus brings them in and sits them down. And for a couple of hours, the temple becomes what it was always supposed to be, a place uh, where the, there's no sacrifices happening, there's healing happening. The blood has stopped flowing. Um, now people are being made whole and glorified again. Um, after that, he goes home. Um, on his way back into the city the next day, he curses a fig tree, basically burns, burns the Jerusalem flag in effigy as walk, while he's walking into Jerusalem, gets in a fight with the, the elders and the chief priests, a rabbinical argument back and forth, and then the priests say, we are done talking to you because he had basically pinned them against a wall with an argument that he had made. And they stop talking, and he says, well, then I'll stop talking as well. Let's stop the argument. How about a story? Would you like to hear a story? And they're like, Sure, we love stories. He's like, great, I have two. And then I have some commentary on the story. Story number one goes like this. There's a family business. It's a wine press. It's a vineyard. 
And there's a father and there's apparently two sons. And they all work in this thing together. This is a family business. We get up every day and this is what we do. And he goes to the first son and he says, son, stand up. Make yourself useful. Go into the field and pick some grapes. Uh, It is time to harvest some grapes. And the first son says, I don't want to. And he storms out. And he's wandering around and finally he goes, all right, I'll do it. And then he goes into the field and starts working. Okay. The second son, he says, son, I would like for you to go into the field and start doing the family business and harvesting the grapes. And he says, father, dearest, I will absolutely do whatever your wish is. Whatever your wish is, that is my command. I will now go, thine favorite son, to the fields and I will pick your grapes for thee. Farewell. And he walks out and does nothing. Okay. Now, Jesus looks at them, and he has a question. He says, now, which one of these two sons actually did the will of the father? Okay. They said, the first. That is their answer. Obviously, the one who said no, but then actually did it, is the one who did the will of the father. And Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you, like zero to 60. Like, not even like... Um, For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So, um, one of the sons, the word that is used for he changed his mind, um, is a specific Greek word that is metamelomai. Metamelomai. Everyone say metamelomai. Great. The root of this word is the same thing, is the same word that John the Baptist was using, uh, metanoia, which is to repent. Um, Jesus is now drawing a parallel between the boy um, who said, I repent and I will do the work, um, and he's linking it to John the Baptist. Um, He has already mentioned John the Baptist earlier. For some reason, he keeps bringing up John the Baptist. There is something about John the Baptist that Jesus wants these guys to ponder. Um, So... uh, John the Baptist uh, was a prophet. Um, he was a prophet who basically was, was playing all of Israel's greatest hits. All right, he was, he was Ezekiel, he was Hosea, and he was Isaiah, all rolled into one. He dressed like one of them, he ate like the other one, and he spoke like the third one. Um, he's, he's, um, he walks up into the desert. He was raised as the son of, of the priest, you know, the pastor's kid, rebellious. Um, raised as the priest's son, sees behind the curtain of the, priest, of the temple and says, I want nothing to do with this. I'm going to preach in the wilderness. And he becomes a prophet and he goes into the wilderness and he starts proclaiming the message of Hosea, of Ezekiel, and of Isaiah. Um, and the message that he preaches is very specific. Um, the message is very simple. Uh, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? Uh, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, There's some other stuff going on here. Basically, if I narrow this all down, the message of John the Baptist is um, God hasn't been here in this temple for a long time. It has been a long time since the presence of God or the work of God has been done at all in this temple. You have been in exile, not from your land, but from your own God. And then he says, your influence and your purpose and your place in this world have come to an end and are gone. You have no more influence in this world because you have failed to do the work of the family business. Um, The family business of the temple, if we compare it with the work in the vineyard, the family business 
of the people of God, of Israel, was to be the presence of God in the world, forgiving, restoring, being a blessing to all those who need it. It was never to build a nation. It was never supposed to be um, to be tribal um, and go to war with others. It was always, from the beginning, supposed to be um, God's people, the image of God, presence in the world, living as God intends for us to live, which would bring about blessing to all those around them. And so John, in the wilderness, says, um, I'm not going to preach in the temple because I think the people need to leave the temple, leave the entire city, be baptized, and enter into the temple all over again, enter into the city all over again as new people. And the people do. They rush out of the temple to go out and hear John the Baptist preach in the wilderness. And then he baptizes them in the Jordan River, and it specifically mentions um, the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Um, why does it mention them? Well, they have something in common. The, ta- uh, the pa- ta- blech. Um, I almost called them taxitutes. <laughs> Whatever. Good for work. Um, the prostitutes and the tax collectors. They, uh, <laughs> there's a band name somewhere. Um, now, where was I going? Okay, got it. The tax collectors are the ones who had betrayed their own Jewish people by partnering with the oppressors, the Roman Empire, to collect taxes from their own people. Um, modern, in modern day, we look at the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and we say, well, they were bad because they were lying and stealing, and they were bad because they were having extramarital sex. Um, in the first century, however, however true that might be, the, the, the crime in the mind of the first century Jewish people was that they were taking part in the oppression of God's people in exchange for money and power and influence. Um, the, temp- the prostitutes were very similar. Um, they worked in pagan temples. Uh, they were men and women. And they prostituted themselves and offered sex in exchange for money to be given to the pagan temples, which ended up funneling into Rome because Rome told stories of, of, of Greek mythology and all their storytelling was a part of their empire-building scheme. Um, it's part of the emperor worship and all this. Uh, so the money from the, from the prostitutes was funneled straight into the empire. Um, all of this is basically people trading their identity as God's people, because obviously these are Jewish people coming down to get baptized. It is God's people turning on God for earthly power and riches and might and gain. And they repent. When John points it out to them, they are convicted and they say, you're right, we're going to give up our life the way that we have been living and profiteering off other people um, and oppressing people and rejecting the identity of, God, of God's people in our lives. Um, we're going to give that up and we're going to repent turn away, change our minds, and enter into the city as new people all over again. Now, the people Jesus is talking to, the temple leaders, were there that day. It it says it clearly in Matthew chapter 3 that they were standing there. They actually left the temple and came down. John points them out and says, what in the world are you doing here? Basically, you are the ones who caused all of this in the first place by teaching errant ideas and partnering with the Roman Empire and basically doing exactly what the, what, the, what the tax collectors are doing and what the prostitutes are doing. And then Jesus says, and you saw them repent. You were there. You saw them repent, and you did not. And he says, so, which son did the right thing? Because the temple leaders would never admit that the tax collectors and the prostitutes 
were anything useful, could ever be anything useful. They had given up everything already. They had given up any right to claim godliness. And Jesus says, they, they're, they're entering before you. This is the equivalent of like somebody today walking into like the big prayer breakfast um, in, in D.C. where all the big mega pastors are there and the world leaders are there, the American leaders are there, and, 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 and a pastor getting up to pray and saying, I just want you all to know, everyone in this room, the people which you have spent your life incarcerating and throwing in prison will enter the temple before you. They will enter the kingdom of God before any of you. And the awkward silence that would then ensue. That is exactly what's happening here. His words are heavy, okay? Now, that's number one happy story. Now there's a second happy story, okay? Here we go. The second story is similar setting. Um, Listen to another parable. And they're like, fine. Um, There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put up a wall around it. He dug a wine press, built a watchtower, and then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. This was very normal. A person who bought some land would rent it out to others, and he would, build the, he would build a wall around it. He would put a tower so during the harvest you could see if anybody's stealing, and you could sleep in the tower as well. Um, and, and then he leaves, and he would leave them there to work it. Um, and then at harvest time, he would either have a deal where he'd come back and collect the rents for the year, or he would collect a tenth of... Uh, whatever they had harvested, uh, whichever agreement they had made, okay? Uh, Verse 34, when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Uh, The tenants seized his servants, and they beat one and killed the other and stoned a third. And then he sent other servants to them uh, more than the first time, and the the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So there's some symbols here, obviously, um, that we are supposed to grasp. Uh, the vineyard represents the nation of Israel. Um, Isaiah chapter 5 um, is really the first main time that Israel is, is declared to be the vineyard of God. Um, uh, he specifically says, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Um, they knew their scriptures. They would have known what he's talking about when he talks about a vineyard. Vineyard is Israel. Um, second, there are cultivators, um, workers in the field, the religious leaders of Israel. They are the ones who are supposed to be doing the family business. Um, the family business of God's people is blessing, restoring, reconcile, mercy, all of it, all of that. Um, and then there's the messengers, the prophets. Over and over and over again, God sent the prophets to the leaders of Israel to stand up and confront them and say, you are not taking part in the family business. You are not showing justice and mercy. You are oppressing people. You have gathered up horses and chariots from Egypt. You have done all of the things that we were never supposed to do. Now you are exactly like Egypt, whom God has freed you from, and you have become the thing that God has freed you from. How could you do this? Repent, get rid of it all, and change, and follow God and be a blessing in the world once more. And every time the prophets do this, just like the parable Jesus is telling, they kill the prophet and throw him out. All through the Old Testament, the prophets are killed over and over and over again for daring to proclaim to the people in power that they are misusing the power, that they are treating people terribly. Now, um, the owner's son, obviously, Jesus is referencing himself, entering in. um, The owner's son enters in, uh, and they kill him, thinking... You know, if we just kill this guy, we'll own the whole farm. Um, 
tenants' rights. Like if the farm, if the owner in the first in the first century, if an owner of a farm had tenants and that owner died and there was no one left to own the farm, they took over the farm, and this was the plan. So, what Jesus was really saying to them is, he's saying, given the opportunity, you would kill God if it meant that you could keep control of His people, and eventually they would. This is exactly what they would do. This is why the Bible warns so much about putting our hope in humans as kings. Because over and over and over again, scriptures and history has proclaimed the idea that we will do terrible things to hold on to that power and that influence and that money. And given the opportunity, we would not only kill the prophets of God, the people speaking truth to the power, we would even slay God if we could. We will do anything to silence the message of God to hold on to our position and our power. Human, this is the message all the way back in the book of Genesis. Human beings are always attempting to usurp the throne of God. It was the message in Genesis with the serpent when he said, you will be like God. Eat of the fruit. And then there is Tower of Babel. Um, we're going to build um, a tower all the way up to the throne of God and we're going to usurp that throne. And the warning every single time comes when you usurp the throne of God, when you don't recognize God as king and follow God and God alone, when you follow these other earthly kings, things go wrong. And this is what Jesus is telling them. And you'll see why in a couple of minutes. Um, so basically, Jesus looks at them and he says, um, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants, to those tenants who were sitting there who have done all these terrible things and then killed the son. When the actual owner steps in, what is he going to do? Verse 41, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they, uh, they replied. And he, and, he, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. So they have now pronounced, this is how parables work, they are a mirror. You are intended to make a judgment call on what is happening in the story that ends up with you calling out your own Sin. This happens all the time in the scriptures. And apparently these guys haven't been paying attention and they fell right into the trap, okay? And they say, well, of course, he's going to take it away from them and give it to someone else. Now, let's pause for a second because something I want to talk about, just, just for a second. This passage has been used a lot to promote the idea um, that some call like cessationism, um, the idea that that Israel ended and Christianity began and replaced Israel. The church did. Um, that is a bad reading. It is a modern reading. It is a reformed reading. It's, I, I, don't, I don't think it's a good reading. I think it's a bad reading. I, I, I don't think it's what Paul's doing in Romans at all. Um, the way I view all of this is that Jesus uh, reformed Israel. It's a restoration. Early Christianity was a restoration of Israel movement. The Jewish people believed the world would be made right if they had their king, if they had their temple, if they had their land. Um, by land, I mean a space in the world where only Jewish people lived and no one else, right? Um, and, um, and, and that's how they would end up with their peace in the world. And so Jesus becomes their king, their righteous king, the prince of peace, we call him. Um, they receive their temple because Jesus says, I'll tell you what, you are the temple. All of you, 
your body, and when you gather together, I put you together as living stones, as the temple. And what about the land? I mean, there's two ways this is answered. First off, if the Jewish people wanted, their demand was that all people in the land of Israel um, be God's people, Jesus, through his work, kicks the door open and says, here, I'll fix the problem. They're all God's people now. I accept all of them. Now, all God's people are in the land. Not only that, he says, my land also now has no borders. It is the entire world. Jesus is now king of the entire world, of the whole thing. And we, as we live in these earthly kingdoms, are resident aliens in this place. We have, uh, our brothers and sisters are part of a kingdom around the world who has our own Lord and God and king. And we follow this king and this king alone. Jesus is Lord. That'll get you killed in Rome. And it did. So, um, this passage has been used by Christians to promote the idea that the Jewish people should no longer exist, that they are not God's people, that God has done with them. Um, and that is how we end up with theologians who can write incredible, brilliant exegesis of different passages of Scripture while at the same time publishing anti-Semitic writings about how terrible the Jewish people are. That happens when we misuse Scripture in this way and when we misunderstand the first century understand the first century Jewish perspective of Christianity. Okay, um, I don't think it's a healthy thing. Um, so I'll need to leave that there. I think one day we'll go into this and we'll open this up really big and talk about it bigger. I'm just going to leave it here for now, um, and maybe that'll plant something to get you to read some more. Um, okay, so then um, they answer the question, and then Jesus says. Uh, something really interesting, something really different. Uh, He says, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it is is marvelous in our eyes. Uh, Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. So um, subject change entirely. We go from fields and people working in the fields to let's talk about rocks. (laughs) And then he says, um, this eventually, there's a new thing that will happen. Your influence will fade and wane and your authority will be given to another who will lead into something else that will grow. Now, this gets a little confusing to modern readers. To the Jewish reader in the first century, it makes perfect sense. You know why? Because they knew their Bibles. Um, A Jewish boy by the age of 12 years old knew the entire Pentateuch. He could quote the thing. And they say, it's maybe Jewish folklore, who knows? But they say that one of the tests for becoming a rabbi was that you could take a needle and stick it through a scroll and they could tell you exactly which passages and possibly even which words that needle had passed through. I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) Sounds rabbinical to me. I don't know. Um, Now, okay. They knew their scriptures. When Jesus starts talking about stones and stuff like this being thrown out and stuff, they understand what he's getting at because they knew their scriptures. Um, there are two stones which are mentioned. The first stone is what's called the builder stone that is rejected. We find this in Psalm 118. Instantly, they would have known this. Psalm 118, verse 22. Um, it talks about um, a structure being built like a temple, right? In those days, uh, all the stones would be cut at the quarry over here. You're going to cut them all up, and you're going to put little markings on them, and you're going to send them all together, um, and they're going to arrive, and you're going to assemble them. You're going to roll out the blueprints, and you're going to assemble the blocks the way they, that it, the blueprint says. A1 goes here. A2 goes here. A3 goes here. B1, B2. You start moving along. 
As the story goes in Psalm 118, there is a stone that doesn't quite fit right. It has been cut, but it doesn't make any sense. And the builders look at it and they say, this is useless. Uh, We're going to need a new B14, okay? And they throw it out. It has no use to them. And what the the prophets were saying back then was, the stone that had been rejected will will where it sits, it will become something. Um, A whole other structure will be built upon it. It will be the chief cornerstone, the most important part that has to be cut perfectly. Uh, What he's basically saying is, that stone was never cut for that building. That stone was cut for this building. And you didn't even know it. And so you threw it out, right? In the book of Psalms, this is referring to Israel. Israel was hated by everyone. It didn't fit into the kingdoms of the world. It didn't have a place in this world. It didn't fit anywhere. Um, it was weird. It was cut funny. It, uh, it, they, they dressed weird. They ate weird. Um, they had weird Sabbath laws. Um, they, their, their laws on, on, on forgiveness and debt relief and, and immigration and all these things were, were vastly different than any other kingdom of the world. And it didn't quite fit. And so they were rejected everywhere that they went. But the prophets would always say, the reason that stone is rejected is because it was never meant to fit into these earthly kingdoms. It was always meant to build something different. Okay? That is the first stone. By making one little line reference, Jesus is referencing the the idea and the whole passage. And they get this. Okay? The second stone that is mentioned... Uh, is from Daniel 2. It's a stone that crushed, that crushes and breaks. Sorry. Hooked on Phoenix. Worked for me. Um, uh, that, like four people over the age of 35. We're like, I, I remember that. Now, um, Daniel chapter 2 is where you're going to find this passage. Um, this is a huge passage, and this is where we're going to spend a few minutes. Okay? So I want you to put a placeholder here. There's two stories we've just heard. Let's talk about rocks. Okay? Here we go. Um, There is this king, this ancient king in Daniel 2. Uh, His name is Nebuchadnezzar. He's an evil, evil man. Um, He does terrible things, but he's very, very powerful. Um, This this king has a dream that nobody can answer. Um, Not only can none of his prophets uh, sort of um, interpret it for him, um, he doesn't even tell them what the dream is because they're prophets, right? And he's like, I want you to tell me what my dream was and then interpret it for me. They're like, well... You, you have to tell us what the dream is. He's like, oh, didn't see that coming? Is that? No? Okay. Um, and then uh, none of them could do it, so he starts slaying prophets all through his land. And then, and then Daniel steps up and says, I can, I can do this. I can tell you what your dream is. No problem. And Daniel steps up and he says, here's what your dream was. Your dream was a mighty statue. I picked this one because this is the general area, of the, uh, the general place, the general area, and this is what um, it may have looked like. Um, there's a statue, and it's huge. It's a very, very big statue. Its head and shoulders are made of gold. His chest and arms are made of silver. His, uh, his middle and thighs are made of bronze. Um, his legs are made of iron, and his feet, these giant feet that hold the entire structure, are made of a mixture of iron and clay. It's a, it's a weird statue, and that's what it is. Now, um, on top of that, you dreamed that another rock, a new thing was going to happen where a rock would fly in and he would hit your feet of the statue um, and it would break because it's made of iron and clay. And the whole statue would crumble down and this rock would begin to grow and this rock would become a mountain range that would cover the entire mountain. Nebuchadnezzar's like, yes, you nailed it. That was my dream. 
what does it mean? And he goes, oh, okay. Here's what it means. Um, starting with your kingdom, your kingdom is represented by the gold head. He's like, that's right. Um, however, after you, as we move down, down the statue, they all represent kingdoms, and each kingdom after yours would be less glorious than the one before. And eventually, the last kingdom here, there's going to be an iron kingdom of the legs, and then there's going to be these feet that will be a mixture of iron and clay, very brittle, not real strong. Um, this is a representation of the kingdoms of the world after yours, heading all the way up. Um, and there's this question, when, when is this all going to happen? Because there's something terrible that happens. This rock flies in and hits it. He says, that's going to be a new thing, a new kingdom that will arise and that will cover the world and it will change and it will erase everything that came before it. And he says, well, when is this going to happen? And the book of Daniel says, 70 weeks of years. That's 490 years. 490 years after this happens, we have the time of Christ. We have the first century. And everyone is buzzing about the book of Daniel. There are so many books and writings written in the first century about the book of Daniel. The Jewish people were enraptured with this idea that now something is about to happen. That's why they're rioting all the time. That's why they're uprising. That's why they're like, we're about to overthrow our kingdom. Um, We're going to overthrow this because Rome must be the... um, the people, the, 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 the empire made of, of clay and iron, and we're going to rise up, and we're the rock, and we're going to smash this whole thing. Jesus, however, interprets this differently. I mean, these conversations were happening everywhere. There's a poet named Virgil who writes to King Herod, who's half Jewish. I mean, that seems to make sense. He's Greek and he's Jewish together, right? And he writes, he writes, to, to, he writes to Herod, and he says, are you the one who is to come? This question is being everywhere. This question is in the Bible. Are you the one who is to come? They're waiting for something to happen. Messiahs are rising up, and they're being slaughtered and killed everywhere. It was, a, it, was a, it was a huge time for the Jewish people. Jesus is claiming to be the stone that smashes. Jesus sees the feet of iron and clay mixture. He sees that as the uneasy alliance of Herod and the chief priests. It's God's people who have mixed with the people of Rome. He's interpreting this through the lens of Jeremiah, who says God's people are clay, and God molds them. But God's people are constantly also being molded in the image of earthly empires as well. It's a huge temptation we've always had. And he says, what Jesus is saying is, you, chief priests, you Pharisees and you Sadducees, you have joined forces with Herod to get a temple, to get money and prestige, and you control your people. And I am here to wipe the feet out from under you and to plant something new which will grow and overtake all of it. Okay? Now, some questions. What do stones have to do with the vineyard and the sons? It's a very simple thing. It would have been easy to see had we spoken Greek and been present there. Um, the word for son is the word ben. The word for stone is the word eben. They rhyme, and Jesus runs with that. That's it. That's honestly all it is. This was very normal. Happened all the time. There were two sons. I meant stones. You know, like they would just shift and go a different direction as a way of getting their message across. This was very rabbinic, very normal. Um, so that's happening. So what Jesus is basically saying here, I'll wrap it up with this, and I'm going to offer you some thoughts to ponder. What Jesus is saying is this. I am the obedient one. 
that you think is in rebellion? I am the son who brings God's message and is killed. I am the stone that that you have rejected, but upon which God will build a structure which will replace you and everyone in your position. It's like a solemn moment where everyone else in the room would have their eyes glued and then turn to look at these chief priests. And the next thing it says is, and they began to ponder how they might kill him. Of course, he's a prophet. He's speaking truth to power. What do you do with prophets? You kill them. Why? They're a threat to your way of life. You've got money and power and influence in a really nice house. You're going to let this wandering preacher take it all away? No. Let's find some dirt, shall we? And they're going to kill him. And he even tells them, you're going to kill me. And then they're like, we should kill this guy. (laughs) Now, some thoughts. There's all of this, two parables and a bunch of stone stuff, okay? All of this. Take some time this week and ponder this and and ponder a few thoughts. Because here's the thing. Parables are meant to be read like a mirror. You're supposed to look at the parable and ask the question, who am I in this story? Who is wearing my face? Um, Maybe uh, you are the one who is confessing Jesus as Lord. You have confessed it. Yes, you are my, my king. I will work in your fields. I will take part in the family business. But you just don't. Maybe, maybe you see yourself in the story. Um, maybe that's you. Maybe you're the one whose life is, is pretty messy looking, and everyone kind of looks at you as like, oh, they're rebellious. They haven't really accepted the things of God because their life doesn't look like mine. But maybe you know you have a growing love and affection for the person and the teachings of Jesus Christ. And it is beginning to take over your life. And you are beginning to see, I need to take part in this. Jesus would say, you are the one who is obedient, not them. Um, There are words in this passage about stones being thrown out that will actually be the thing that will grow into the thing that God is going to do, the huge thing God is doing. Um, I would argue we need to constantly be on the search, on the lookout in our lives for the ones, the prophets in our lives who are speaking truth to us, who are telling us this is the way you need to go, this is what you need to repent of. And our response is always to silence, to reject, and to kill. We need to be aware of this. We need to listen to it. Um, they may very well be doing the work of God in your life. Uh, Every year about this time, um, February, um, around uh, Martin Luther King Day, I I see some things online, um, and it always is displayed the same way. There are people who who post brilliant and moving words of wisdom uh, from from civil rights activists uh, from... Back, in, uh, back in, the, in the day when this work was really picking up and taking off, um, uh, Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, uh, uh, Martin Luther King, of course, and, 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 and um, black theologians, and, um, and they, they post them. And these people were doing amazing work, freeing people who had been oppressed for a very long time. This is God. This is, this is Jesus' work. This is kingdom work. This is what God does, frees the oppressed. And the problem is, um, whenever I, I always make the mistake of clicking 
read comments. <laughs> and there's always somebody who says, their theology was suspect. They didn't believe uh, fully in this view of the Trinity or this view of penal substitutionary atonement and this and that. You shouldn't read them. Which one is the son who obeyed? The one who sat behind the computer and said, Don't, like, I'm a follower of Jesus and didn't listen? Or the one who was out there whom you interpret as, oh, see, I wouldn't know. He's, he's, a, he's a no. He's a, he's a hard pass on this. But he's out there actually doing the work of God. And you're complaining about their theology when the fact is the seminary you studied in wouldn't allow black people in. And you're upset that he doesn't know what you know. I think you need to spend time serving under them because they are the ones doing the work of God. And how often do we reject people and we look for excuses to reject people? And the stone that is thrown out and rejected becomes the one upon which God's work actually ends up happening and justice enters into the world through. And we, the temple leaders, stand back and say, ah, that has nothing to do with us. And it's unjust. Um, There are messages in this text. There's so many messages in this text. There's one about mixed medium, right? Um, there's feet of iron and clay. Iron is obviously, it's, it's, a, it's a symbol of, of the empire, the weapons of iron, the latest te- technological advances in, in, in weaponry. And then there's clay, God's people, moldable people. And we're supposed to be molded by our king and to become Christ-like more and more and more. But the problem with discipling people in the ways of Jesus is that they've already been discipled in the ways of the empire, in the ways of other kings, in the ways of other, in, in the ways of other, other cultures and other subcultures that have um, ideas of success that have nothing to do with love and grace and mercy and being the image of God in the world. And we've already been discipled. And there's this mixed medium between us and them um, and we have joined ourselves to these forces. I mean, we have lost our ability to become a prophetic voice in the world, to be an independent people who have another king who say, we see what you're doing. This is the path of Jesus. This is not. This is the path of Jesus, and this is not. More of this, less of this. And if you don't, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna rise up and get in your way. But we have lost our ability. I mean, and, and the problem is oftentimes we trade... We trade right-wing evangelicalism for left-wing evangelicalism. We have lost our ability. We have become a mixed medium to prop up the empires of this world by selling ourselves and molding ourselves right into their structures. We are a prophetic voice in the world. We are resident aliens. We don't fit. You cannot fit. You will not fit. And if you try, when God removes things that need to be removed, you will be removed with it. Every time we do this, it's bad for them and it's bad for us. Every single time. We must be the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. We must be the prophetic voice. We must step back And see clearly that we have a king who has already gone ahead and laid out the way. And and understand that kingdom ethics are above everything else. Now, what are kingdom ethics? What is this? How does this work? Kingdom ethics are very, very simple. Let me make this very easy for you. 
Things that will exist in the kingdom. The kingdom, by the kingdom, I mean the world made right and whole. Um, Jesus on the throne. Peace. Open access and communication with our true king. Living in a restored and regenerated world. Fueled by the love of God. And lightness and goodness. Whatever will exist then. That's what we fight for here. Whatever will not exist then, I will not fight for it here. I will not. The kingdom of God, this is the theology of it's already, but it's not yet, right? Like the kingdom of God is at hand. It is here, it is available for you now to live in this thing which will grow and cover all of the world. This is how it works. And the, the clear image that we are given is Jesus on the cross. Um, who gives up his cosmic power to liken himself to those at the bottom. The entirety of scriptures is written from the bottom of the empire, the entire thing, um, all of it. It is always written from the people who are, who, are, who are enslaved and oppressed, who are wandering, who are homeless, who are kicked around. And then finally, when God's people get some land and a king and palaces and they rise up, you know where the, 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 the viewpoint changes and it, it switches over to the prophets who walk in and they point their finger in the face of the king and they say, Here's everything you're doing wrong now. Every time a page of the Bible is written, it changes perspective to the person who is speaking to the ones who are attempting to be kings in the world and saying, there is already a king. Yahweh. That is who the king is. Which is why when Jesus comes, he enters as an impoverished baby sleeping at a food trough of animals in a stable. And that's why all the peasants in the land were proclaiming, Emmanuel, God is with us. No one has ever been with us, but God is with us. We have always been told he's up there and we need to climb our way up. No, but Jesus the stone has destroyed that and he is doing something new. God is with you. Whatever you're going through, whatever your situation is, he's with you. He's for you. Let's take communion. Our communion servers can go and take the elements and spread around the room. Communion. It's our way of likening ourselves to Jesus. It is, there's, there's bread and there is wine. Um, the, the bread is the body of Christ broken for you. The wine is the blood of Christ poured out for you for your salvation and your healing. And there is this invitation for you as you take it to, to take part in it. Um, recognize Jesus as king of more and more and more of your life every single week, every single day. Um, and beginning to learn how to pour yourself out for others. And so as we go into a time of prayer, if you need to repent, do it. If you need prayer, uh, right through these doors on the left, there's a prayer room, and there should be somebody in there to pray with you. Um, take some time, ponder all of these things. And uh, our communion servers, whenever you guys are ready, you come on forward, and let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us and make us whole. Help us to recognize the new thing that you were doing and how it does not fit with what with what anyone in the world is doing. Thank you for uh, giving us a seat at the table. Help us to uh, shape our lives to you, not the other way around. In your name, amen. Take some time, talk to Jesus.